Thank you for that excellent singing. Thank you to our music team this morning for leading us in worship. Uh, you are appreciated, and uh, we value the gifts and talents that God has poured into you, so thank you. Let's take time to pray as once again we open uh, the Sermon on the Mount and hear from Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that it is better to trust in you than in men. It is better to trust in you than in princes. You are our refuge. You are a shield to us and a bulwark, and in your bosom we find rest and we find peace. And Lord, during this hour, as we have come away from the cares of the world to be with you, to hear from you, to worship you, we ask that now your voice would take your word and speak to us afresh, uh, the word of the risen Christ. And Father, may you um, pour the oil of gladness into places in us that are mourning. May you uh, pour in balm where there is woundedness. Uh, Father, we pray that we would leave this place somehow strengthened and encouraged after this time in your word. We pray in the mighty and in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Matthew 5.4 is our preaching text this morning, but I want to begin by taking us back hundreds of years prior to the time when Jesus spoke the words in Matthew 5.4. So here we are, hundreds of years before Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. We're at the time, or the times, plural, when Israel had suffered two separate major exiles. The first exile happened in 722 B.C. This was the exile of the northern part of the kingdom of Israel to the land of Assyria. On a military level, Assyria had proved way too strong for little Israel. Israel's people were forcibly exiled out of their land into the foreign nation of Assyria. And then the second exile that Israel suffered happened later in 587 B.C. when the superpower in the region at that time, the nation of Babylon, overtook the southern part of Israel Jerusalem and its temple were ruined in that conflict, and the people were exiled into the land of Babylon. The experience of exile for both north and south was a dreadful and traumatic thing. Exile, you see, meant being ripped out of the land that God had promised the people, Exile meant that the whole notion of an Israelite king in David's lineage, which was so integral and so important for Israel, was thrown into jeopardy. And exile also meant that the Jerusalem temple, the place of God's presence with Israel, became a thing of the past, as the people were suddenly, drastically, taken far away from their beloved temple into a land where other gods were worshipped. And so exile was a tragic earthquake 
for God's people for all of those reasons. But what I want us to bear in mind with the help of a passage in 2 Kings 17 is that the cause of Israel's exile was the sin of Israel. The reason for Israel's awful experience of exile had been their own transgression against their God. 2 Kings 17, verses 7 through 23, are like a coroner's report or an autopsy report explaining what amounted to a national death, explaining how it was that Israel ended up in exile. The writer of Kings tells us that the first exile to Assyria happened Quote, because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, verse 7. The exile happened, verses 7 and 8, because the people of Israel had feared other gods and had walked in the customs of the nations. The exile to Assyria happened because, verses 9 through 12, Israel had been steeped in idolatry contrary to the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments. The exile to Assyria took place because, verse 15, the people despised, despised the statutes of of their God Yahweh. And the exile happened because, verse 16, they abandoned Yahweh's commandments. The cause of the exile was the sin of the people. And even though this passage in 2 Kings rehearses the evil of the northern part of the kingdom, even though this passage gives sin as the reason for the exile of the northern part of Israel, it also indicates in verse 19 that the southern kingdom of Judah was really no better off than the north. The exile of the southern kingdom of Judah was only a matter of time because, as the writer of Kings says there in verse 19, Judah in the south also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God. They too walked in the customs that the northern kingdom had introduced. It's interesting that in the years that followed the exile of the southern kingdom to Babylon, the scribe Ezra was reflecting back on the experience of Judah's exile. And in Ezra 9-7, Ezra said, It was for our iniquities that we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame. Did you hear that? It was for our iniquities, for our sins, that exile befell us. And likewise, Daniel, as he himself sat in exile, Daniel was praying in Daniel 9-7, and there Daniel said, that it was God who had driven his people to foreign lands. He had exiled the people because of the treachery of those people against God. 
Friends, it was sin and transgression and iniquity against God that had been the spark that ignited the fire of exile. The trauma of exile itself was something greatly to be lamented, but the sin that lay behind the exile, the sin that had caused the exile, was even more to be lamented. Which leads us to Isaiah 61. The prophet Isaiah wrote Isaiah 61, we have to understand, to exiled people. He wrote to people who were in a context where they understood, or at least they were gaining a clear understanding, that it had been their own rebellion against God that had caused their experience of exile. And in Isaiah 61.2 and 61.3, the prophet uses the verb to mourn. In verse 2, Isaiah prophesies the servant of the Lord who comes to comfort all who mourn. And in verse 3, what's promised is the oil of gladness instead of mourning. What were Isaiah's readers mourning about? In their historical context, they were mourning, they were bewailing, they were lamenting the sin that had caused their exile out of Jerusalem. They were mourning over their repeated transgressions against God, which had brought about their national death, their appalling and lamentable circumstance of exile. Well, this morning's preaching text is Matthew 5, verse 4. And in Matthew 5, 4, Jesus quotes, he quotes Isaiah 61. He says in Matthew 5, 4, Makarioi, flourishing, are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 61-2 where we have the phrase to comfort all who mourn. So, listen. If Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 here in Matthew 5-4 which he clearly does and if Isaiah 61 was about exiles mourning their sin, which had caused their exile, as we have argued, then I think we need to read Matthew 5.4 in the light of Isaiah 61. In other words, the mourning that Jesus is on about in Matthew 5.4 is a specific category of mourning, my exiled friends, With Isaiah 61 in the background, Jesus is talking to us here about mourning over sin. Mourning over our own sin personally 
and mourning also over sin and its effects in other people around us. Our sin as human beings is the cause of our exile. And it is something to be lamented. It is something to be mourned over. Blessed are those who mourn. I've talked in times past from this pulpit about the two ages that are assumed in the Bible. Two ages. We have the old age ruled by sin, death, and the devil. And we have the new age that has been ushered in with the coming of Jesus Christ. And right now, in 2018, we live in the overlap of the ages. The overlap of the old age with the new age. And because the old age is still a reality for us in the present time, we find ourselves still east of Eden. Exiled from what we had as human beings when God walked with us in the cool of the day in the garden. Now, of course, as believers who live in the cleansing forgiveness of our God that he has brought in Jesus Christ, we look forward, don't we, to, in, in hope we look forward to the time coming when the new age, which has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ and by him, will supersede the old age and will do away with the old age of sin, death, and the devil altogether and forever. We know that the new heavens and new earth are coming. But for now, in this time in which we find ourselves, we still live in exile, complete with ongoing, stubborn, sinful inclinations inside of us, complete with domestic violence, and drug deals, and disease, and corruption, and wars, and racial fracture, and crime, and incest, and depression, and all the rest of it. And the one who flourishes in this time, says Jesus in Matthew 5.4, is the one who mourns over sin and its Devastating effects, knowing that comfort has come in Jesus Christ and is coming in Him. Flourishing are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. So I'm arguing here that the mourning that Jesus is referencing here in Matthew 5.4 is not just a general sort of mourning but specifically with Isaiah 61 working in the background, it's mourning over sin and its consequences. Now again, as it was last week when we were looking at 5.3, these, these words of Jesus in the fourth verse just seem so upside down and so topsy-turvy, don't they? I mean, who likes a person who goes around mourning? In our Western culture, we tend to get nervous around people who are mourning, who are in mourning. We avoid them at parties. We take our drink and go elsewhere. 
We prefer to turn the channel to good times. Sunny ways, laughter, happiness, cotton candy, and smiling butterflies instead of rain and sadness. But along comes the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And he tells us here how things actually are. In the universe that he's created and that he rules, the one who flourishes is the one who maintains a posture of mourning over the condition of himself or herself. The one who flourishes is the one who mourns over the condition of the sin-sick world. This sort of mourning, we, we need to see here, it's consecrated here in this verse by Jesus. This, this sort of mourning is brought here into the realm of holy things. Now, time and time again, I have wondered throughout my Christian life why so many of us who are Christians, why we've bought into this idea that to be filled with the Spirit means that we should appear happy all the time. Why have we bought into that problematic notion? Do we think that pasting a smile on our face is necessary for our witness? John Stott hits the nail on the head when he says this, quote, Some Christians seem to imagine that, especially if they are filled with the Spirit, they must wear a perpetual grin on their face and be continually boisterous and bubbly. And then Stott asks... How unbiblical can one become? Wow. Flourishing are those who mourn, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament that was Jesus' Bible, the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills, is chock full of encouragements to us to acknowledge the sin that's inside of us and to acknowledge the sin that's all around us and mourn over that sin. The psalmist in Psalm 38.4 felt personally, felt that his iniquities were a heavy burden that was too heavy for him. Mourning over sin. In Psalm 40, verse 12, he says that his iniquities, his sins, had overtaken him. That's the word he uses, had overtaken him, and that his heart failed because of it. Mourning over sin. In Psalm 51, David had a broken spirit and a contrite heart in the face of his sin. Mourning over sin. In Psalm 119, 134, the psalmist looks at the sin in others around him in his world. He sees how people were not keeping God's law. And the psalmist says there in that verse, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 
mourning over sin. The Bible commends it and the Bible encourages it. In Ezekiel 9.4, God commanded that for the people who would sigh and groan over the abominations that were being committed in Jerusalem, that a special protective mark should be put on their foreheads. God would protect those who mourned over sin. In Ezra 9 and Ezra 10, Ezra mourns over sin. Ezra admits his shame to God and how he can't even lift his head in God's direction because of the sins and the guilt of his community. Ezra fasts. And according to Ezra 10.6, he mourned the faithlessness of the exiles. He mourned the faithlessness of the exiles. Mourning over sin. Friends, we need more mourners in the church. The Bible normalizes mourning over sin, and it invites this sort of mourning. And further, further... As we observe the person of Jesus himself in the scriptures, he too becomes a model for us who by his life encourages us to mourn over sin and mourn over the consequences of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, just note the salient point that Isaiah 53 verse 3 does not call Jesus a man of laughter and acquainted with fun. Rather, it says that the very nature of the Messiah Jesus is that he's a man of what? Sorrows. Acquainted with what? Grief. Martin Lloyd-Jones once pointed out, that nowhere in the Bible do we have a record that Jesus laughed. Now, I'm sure that Jesus did laugh, but we don't have a record of it in Scripture. Instead, what we do have records of are Jesus weeping, of Jesus becoming angry, of Jesus suffering, We might say that Jesus embodied the mourning that he commends in this verse. See Jesus weeping at the grave of Lazarus in John 11. Jesus wept in that moment. Why? Not necessarily because Lazarus was dead and would never come back. After all, Jesus knew full well in that moment as he was weeping that momentarily he would be raising Lazarus to life again. Jesus wept there, I think, because the death of Lazarus and the grief that his death was causing his family and friends was all part of the devastation that humankind's fall into sin had caused. Jesus was weeping there over the train wreck of sin. Flourishing are those who mourn. See Jesus in Luke 19, drawing near the city of Jerusalem and weeping over it, 
because of the rebellious hardness of heart in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Flourishing are those who mourn. See Jesus in Mark 3, grieved, grieved at the hardness of heart in some synagogue Jews who questioned his healing a man on the Sabbath. Flourishing are those who mourn. Jesus Christ, by his life, models for us what it is to mourn over sin. But see, the difference, the difference between Jesus and us in this regard is that when Jesus mourned over sin, that sin was all external to himself. The sin that Jesus mourned was the sin of fallen human beings outside of himself. He wasn't and isn't a fallen human being. In other words, Jesus has no sinful inclinations of his own to mourn over. But you and I do. Jesus actually described us as being sick. He said in Luke 5.31 that he came as a physician for those who are sick. That's you and that's me. Sin is a great, listen, it is a great eternally terminal sickness Unless you receive the cure. Isaiah 1 verses 5 and 6 describes sin as a most serious sickness. It says, the whole head is sick. Sounds pretty serious. And the whole heart faint. It's on life support. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Uh Uh-oh but bruises and sores and raw wounds. That's a description of the sickness called sin. In Psalm 51.8, David described his sin there as broken bones. In our fallen state outside of God's grace, we we are eternally terminal. Outside of God's grace. And a disease this bad is to be mourned. You don't make merry with your disease. To quote the Puritan Thomas Watson, you mourn over your disease. Flourishing are those who mourn. You know, all I have to do is look back on this past week and ask myself, I'll only speak for myself here. Ask myself, why was I so unreasonably irritable last Tuesday? And on Thursday, why was it that my anger flared up in a construction zone when I was all by myself in the car? Why did I envy the guy with the amazing speedboat on the 40 being pulled behind his snazzy new truck. What is it in me? What is it in me that causes envy and anger and lust and jealousy and covetousness? What's wrong with me? 
And the answer is this condition that I have called sin. And even as Christians, ladies and gentlemen, we're still in a fight against our sin, are we not? Which is why Paul can say in Romans 8.13, put sin to death, Christian. It's a present tense thing. And in Colossians 3.5, he can exhort us, put to death what is earthly in you. We are still in a fight. Even though Jesus and his cross, Jesus and his resurrection is the costly medicine that God has sent as the cure of our disease, in this old age, in this overlap of the ages, we still have to fight against the sin that remains in us. As John Frame puts it so well, he says, quote, Christ has broken in us the dominion of sin, but has not eliminated all sin from our lives. We still have to fight to kill sin in us, what the Puritans used to call the mortification of sin. Mortify it. Kill it. Sin is to be mourned. Sin is to be lamented. Sin is to be fought. It is, in fact, to be hated. Now, what I'm going to say next is somewhat controversial. But I want to encourage you to pray to, pray to God for an increase of hatred of your sin. Pray for a fresh sight of your Savior bleeding on the wood because of your sin and thereby deepen in your hatred for your sin. Don't get friendly with the bear, to use last, last week's illustration. Fight the bear. Call down firepower from heaven. Thomas Watson is again brilliant here. He says, this is written in 1660. He said, a sin hater will never admit of any terms of peace with his or her sin. The war between him or her and sin is like the war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And then Watson quotes 1 Kings 14.30. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. Part of mourning over our own sin is learning to hate that sin. To wage war on it all our days. Friends, sin is a ghastly Sickness. Sin distrusts God, and sin denies God, and sin shames us, and sin injures us. And if left untreated and unforgiven, sin will lead us to hell. Christians should join their Lord, the man of sorrows, in grieving over this most horrific thing called sin. We should grieve and mourn over the sin that remains in us, and we should be people who grieve and mourn as we look around at the sin-sick world around us. And on that latter point, if you want help, go to Amos. Amos mourned, didn't he, as he saw people oppressing people. 
as he saw injustices poured out on the heads of the helpless, as we look around us in 2018 and in this world, we see all manner, don't we, all manner of cruelty and of deceit and selfishness and blasphemy and arrogance and misery and war and chaos. How can we not mourn? Flourishing are those who mourn, says Jesus in our verse. And we ask here, how, Jesus, how exactly are we flourishing when we are mourning the sin that's in us? How, how is it that we are flourishing when we are mourning the sin that is showing itself all around us in the world? How, how, do, how do flourishing and mourning connect? Well, for starters, and I want you to listen carefully here, for starters, to mourn, and I'm talking about mourning from a deep, genuine place in your soul, to mourn over sin and its consequences is in the same neighborhood. It's in the same postal code as repenting. There is a close relationship between mourning over sin and repenting of sin, turning from sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, it's very interesting, Paul talks there about being grieved into repenting. Grieved into repenting. He speaks in that chapter of a godly grief that produces Repentance, a godly grief, mourning, that produces repentance, turning away from sin and turning to God. So there is this close-knit relationship between mourning over sin and repenting of sin. And when we repent of sin before God, our soul is where? It's right at the heart of the physician named Jesus whose crucified, risen self is the cure for our sin. To look up from mourning over sin, there to find the life-saving, redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. This is to flourish. Flourishing are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. The comfort comes in the forgiveness of those sins that we are mourning. Forgiveness by the blood of Jesus Christ. The comfort comes in the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from all sin. The comfort is available now, friends. But the comfort in its fullest measure is yet future. We talked about this last week. Already, but not yet. The comfort is already, but it's not yet. On that day when Jesus returns, listen, on that day when Jesus returns, imagine it, sin itself will be exiled forever off the earth. Talk about comfort. On that day... 
all of our mournful tears will be forever wiped away by God Himself, Revelation 21.4. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And we as believers at that point will live sin-free, I can't imagine it, sin-free in God's presence where there is fullness of joy for century after century after millennia after eon. Fullness of joy in the presence of God. Listen again here to Thomas Watson as he so sweetly describes the comfort that is yet to come for the believer in Jesus Christ. Watson says, There is a time coming, the day star is ready to appear, when the saints shall bathe themselves in the river of life, when they shall never see a wrinkle on God's brow anymore, but his face shall shine, his lips drop honey, his arms sweetly embrace them. I don't know about you, but I'm going to cry for the first 11 centuries as God embraces me. He says, the saints shall have a springtide of joy and it shall never be low water. The saints shall at that day put off their mourning. Then shall the winter be past, the rain of tears be over and gone. The flowers of joy shall appear. And after the weeping of the dove, the time of the singing birds shall come. This is the great consolation, the jubilee of the blessed, which shall never expire. O Lord, I can't wait. Flourishing are those who mourn. Those who mourn over their own sin and those who mourn over the sin that is all around them because they shall be richly and almost incomprehensibly comforted in the future and they are comforted now by the forgiving, cleansing grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Well, I want to wrap things up this morning by encouraging you to water your plants. If you have a garden, you know that in order for things to grow in the soil, they need to be watered. So water your plants. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that your tears of mourning over your own sin, your tears of mourning over the sin that is all around us in this sin-sick world, those tears of mourning serve to water a garden where spiritual fruit Grows. An example. When we shed genuine tears over sin, it dampens the fire of temptation in us to commit sin. I'll say that again. When we shed genuine tears over sin, those, those tears, that mourning dampens the fire of temptation in us 
to commit sin. Another way we could put it is that tears of mourning over sin help to grow the fruit of abstinence from sin. Again, tears of mourning over sin help to grow the fruit of abstinence from sin. This sort of spiritual fruit grows by our mourning over sin, not to mention the fruit of humility as you stand before the cross and understand that Jesus bled and died there as the remedy for the sin that you mourn, humility. So friends, pray to God this week, because this is ultimately his work, pray to God this week for an increase of mourning. Would you do that? Pray to God for an increase of genuine contrition in your life. You flourish in God's world when you mourn in this way. You shall be comforted. Pray this week for more gravity in your assessment of yourself and in your assessment of the world around you. Flourishing are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Lord, to you we go for the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else to go. We thank you for the life-giving fountain that is your word. We thank you that you have come along and have turned our settled arrangements upside down in order to redeem us. There are countless voices every day on social media, TV, all around us that we could listen to, but some are not worth listening to. Your voice, Lord, is the one that we need to hear, to seek, and to listen to. So I pray as we continue this series in the Sermon on the Mount that you would continue to speak not just to our minds but to our hearts and change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the Lord, who has never failed in any of his good promises, who does not leave or forsake his own, may he turn your hearts to him to walk in his ways and to keep his commands that he gave our fathers in the faith. Amen.